I think inevitably there will be one or two people drifting in late. Um, yes, tension. Bang the drum. So um, we are now entering the third session uh, of the nuclear stream and we're coming to, I think, uh, discuss some of the most important aspects of, of what's driving us forward, which is known as a humanitarian imperative. We have five speakers and four, four topics. Uh, and as, as we've done in the past, we'll give each speaker uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes, and then we'll finish up with enough time for discussion afterwards. And I'm sure the speakers will respect my judgment about when to finish. So we're starting off with, with Monica Zach from the Austrian Embassy in London, who is going to give the background to this very important international diplomatic move among countries. There are two aspects of this. There's the, there's the official, if you like, diplomatic international scene run by governments. And behind it, or associated with it, there's the uh, non-governmental organization campaign particularly ICANN, and its moves to um, uh, move forward on a banning treaty. So we've got two very closely linked themes here, um, and Monica is going to start off with the international governmental background. So what's that name? Yes, sta stand and shout if you don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, I was asked to give some uh, outline of the key uh, Austrian views on nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation, and explain a bit why, why we are so strongly engaged in the humanitarian initiative and where the humanitarian initiative has gone so far. So uh, in order to a bit maybe understand the Austrian view compared to, compared to other countries' positions, um, you have to consider that, that we are a small, neutral, uh, Central European EU member state that is not, not in NATO, uh, doesn't possess any nuclear weapons, and uh, has had an, a pronounced anti-nuclear policy enshrined in its constitution. Nuclear issues are very important uh, in the Austrian public and, and political discourse. Austria, on the other hand, is today still in a generally privileged security environment. So uh, it was, but it was different in the in the Cold War when both sides, the Warsaw Pact and NATO, included scenarios with nuclear weapons use in Austria in their military planning. And while the threat posed by nuclear weapons may not be so much in the mind of younger people in Austria today, older generations certainly remember the, this precarious sit uh, security situation uh, during the Cold War. Multilateralism has been an essential component in Austrian security policy for the past 60 years. Uh, we are one of the hosts uh, uh, of the United Nations headquarters and strongly believe that multi uh, multilateral cooperation is the key to finding solutions to global challenges such as nuclear weapons. Uh, therefore, we have been an active proponent of nuclear disarmament from the days of joining the UN in 1955, uh, eager to make a constru constructive contribution to peaceful world order. We have ratified and implemented every possible disarmament and non-proliferation instrument and strongly believe that we need to create a robust, credible and effective international legal system against the proliferation of nuclear weapons and to achieve their elimination. Disarmament and non-proliferation are mutually reinforcing and can only be achieved together. We have worked in the NPT context, uh, so the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons Treaty, 
and played an active role for many years with the aim of achieving progress on nuclear disarmament. <coughs> in 2010, there was the MPT Action Plan on Nuclear Disarmament. It was negotiated under Austrian chairmanship and it was supposed to provide a roadmap for the achievement of the goals of the treaty, in particular nuclear disarmament. This was very essential in the light of the disappointing <coughs> degree of implementation of previous um, agreements in 1995 and 2000. This 2010 action plan for us was an expression of urgency and it was designed to set a clear course towards uh, the achievement of a world without nuclear weapons. However, today, contrary to our expectations and hopes, we have not seen a determined move away from, from the reliance uh, on nuclear weapons in the past years. On the contrary, uh, we keep hearing statements by political leaders in nuclear weapon states declaring their intention to retain nuclear weapons for several decades because they are regarded as being necessary for national security. This is further evidenced by concrete plans and very large budget allocations to modernize nuclear weapons and the respective infrastructure in nuclear weapon states. The modernization and long-term pla plans to retain nuclear weapons may not be in direct violation of the NPT uh, treaty. However, these decisions are running contrary to the spirit and purpose of Article 6 in the of the NPT and the commitments undertaken in, in the years 1995-2000-2010. So we regard this as a dangerous development for the global nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation regime and indeed for international law altogether. We consider this most fundamental threat to the credi credibility of the NPT, which we must resolve. Austria is convinced that we can only do this through a collective and determined move away from nuclear weapons altogether, through strong non-proliferation measures and credible and urgent nuclear disarmament. We have been involved in, in several efforts, together with many other stakeholders, to take the nuclear disarmament agenda forward. One that we are uh, talking about uh, today um, is promoting the uh, humanitarian imperative uh, in all efforts and negotiations related to nuclear weapons. The focus on this aspect and the fact that the hum humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons is now firmly established in the international agenda is the single most positive and important development of the past review cycle. Austria co-initiated co-initiated the joint declarations on the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons together with, uh, with the so-called group of, of 16, so group of countries, uh, of 16 countries. Uh, last December, we organized and hosted the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons. It was the third international conference of this kind following previous meetings in Norway and Mexico. Uh, the conference was attended by 158 states, among them the US and the UK, uh, which, um, which we were very happy about. Um, a broad spectrum of international organizations from the UN system, Red Cross, Red Crescent, many academics and experts, and several hundred representatives of civil society. The discussions and findings with respect to the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons the risks associated with the existence of these weapons, as well as the legal and moral dimension of nuclear weapons, constitute a powerful set of arguments that should lead to an urgent and profound change in the nuclear weapons debate. The Vienna Conference included testimonials on the devastating health, environmental, socio-economic and cultural impacts of nuclear tests and weapons use. 
experts and victims reported on the immediate and long-term health consequences of the blast and the radiation of nuclear explosions, leading to uh, things like internal bleedings and embolisms resulting in death, the loss of fertility, miscarriages, heritable mutations, fatal cancer, and other horrible consequences which affect generations to come and disproportionately harm children and women. The conclusions that have emerged from the humanitarian initiative make clear that the retention of nuclear weapons must be considered a risky and irresponsible gamble based on an illusion of security and safety. The more we really discuss and understand the consequences and the risks of nuclear weapons, the less convincing arguments become that nuclear weapons provide security. As long as these weapons exist, the security of all humankind is greatly diminished. We issued a national pledge at the end of the Vienna Conference, which highlighted the conclusions that we think need to be drawn from this new evidence. Uh, inter alia that all states parties to the NPT should identify and pursue effective measures to fill the legal gap for the prohibition and elimination of nuclear weapons, and the wish to cooperate with all relevant stakeholders in efforts to stigmatize, prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons in light of their unacceptable humanitarian consequences and associated risks. We are very grateful today and I think we can regard it as quite a success that 121 states have formally supported and or endorsed this pledge, which we renamed Humanitarian Pledge in light of its uh, international character. The Humanitarian Pledge represents a commitment to the urgent and full implementation of existing disarmament obligations under the NPT and to identifying and pursuing effective measures to fill the legal gap for the prohibition and elimination of nuclear weapons. Moreover, it is a commitment to cooperate with all relevant stakeholders, states as well as international organizations, International Red Cross, parliament, parliamentarians, civil society, and so on, in, order, uh, in efforts to stigmatize, prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons in light of their unacceptable humanitarian consequences and risks. The catastrophic effects of a nuclear uh, weapon detonation, whether by accident, miscalculation or design, can never be adequately addressed. We therefore believe that all efforts must be exerted to eliminate the threat of these weapons of mass destruction. The strong and growing support for this notion makes us optimistic that progress can be achieved. We are convinced that the importance of the humanitarian initiative lies in the fact that it strengths, strengthens the case against nuclear weapons as such. The humanitarian focus is maybe the best hope to shore up support for the MPT and to create and maintain a strong nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation regime. One of the concerns that nuclear weapon states have voiced about the humanitarian initiative was that it could aim to make nuclear weapons illegal under international humanitarian law or lead to another attempt to invoke the International Court of Justice. In reality though, it is not the legality of nuclear weapons that has emerged as the core issue of the, uh, or the key result of the humanitarian initiative. Rather, it was about the legitimacy of nuclear weapons and, and the legitimacy of a security approach based on nuclear deterrence that has come into clear focus through the humanitarian initiative and is being profoundly challenged. The initiative makes the case that the mere existence of nuclear weapons poses such unacceptable dangers and risks that these weapons as such must be considered irresponsible and illeg illegitimate. 
There has been much talk in Europe about nuclear weapons in the context of the Ukraine crisis. We heard voices that wish to re-emphasize re the role of nuclear weapons or that claim that this crisis should be an, a reason to hold nuclear disarmament and arms control efforts altogether. We strongly oppose such views. We are convinced that the current tensions in Europe make the focus on nuclear disarmament and the full implementation of all obligations and commitments all the more important. Some of the latest developments I would like to mention happened in the first uh, committee of the 70th uh, UN General Assembly this October and November, so very recently. In one of the resolutions brought in by Mexico as a lead nation, uh, an open-ended working group starting uh, next year in 2016 was agreed which should address recommendations and other measures that could take forward multilateral disarmament negotiations. We hope for a very broad participation in this group, which is open to all states. The working group is an opportunity to establish a serious <coughs> dialogue on disarmament and to keep this issue high on the international agenda. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Monica. I think what we'll do is we do as we did in the previous session. We'll hear the next two presentations, then we'll have an opportunity for questions, and then we'll go to the Don't Bank on the Bomb session. Okay, so the, 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 the next next person to come up and speak is Beza Unal from Chatham House, and um, she will introduce herself and her topic. Okay, um, so I'm Beza Unal. I work at Chatham House's nuclear weapons policy expert. I'm Turkish in origin, uh, and I'm going to talk mainly about the facts, actually, that surrounds on the nuclear weapons issues and the humanitarian initiative. Um, as Monica mentioned, the whole idea of the humanitarian imperative and the initiative is based on outlawing, in a way, the nuclear weapons by following a process that is similar to uh, cluster munitions and, and landmine treaties. So uh, the process is similar where the civil society, like Chatham House or the advocacy groups, are actually putting forward the agenda for some states, like Austria, to, uh, to, uh, to come on board and take the initiative to the NPT structure. Uh, in the long term, what is aimed is the nuclear <coughs> weapons and deterrence. Um, what we say is the belief system. It's the belief system that happens in the mindset, so we try to change the minds of the by showing the humanitarian catastrophes and impacts <coughs> of nuclear weapons. Um, and the power of nuclear weapons actually is on the eyes of the beholder. And no actual facts that, there's no actual fact that proves that returns works. Um, but there are a lot of facts, and these are new facts that we say, that the nuclear weapons bring catastrophe. When you ask the, these things to nuclear weapon states in NPT conversations, they would go ahead and say, no, there are no new facts at all. And they would dismiss it, they would put, put pressure, pressure on the non-nuclear weapon states along the lines. So at Chatham House, what we try to come up with is that, yes, there are facts. Some of these facts are known, already known by nuclear weapon states, <coughs> but not known by non-nuclear weapon states. And some of these facts are not known by the two groups as well, or dismissed by the nuclear weapon states. So we are grouping the facts in a way in our thinking. For instance, the, the effects of radiation is known uh, from 1945 onwards. But, um, but the effects, if you look at the US unclassified <coughs> documents, the scientists <coughs> would say, oh, Japan is creating huge 
propaganda, uh, quote-unquote, on the effects of radiation. It was an unclassified document right now from 1945. This is right now proven wrong. So there are facts in that we are learning, and there's this nuclear learning process that's happening, which means that facts can change as well uh, in time. Um, saying that, I'm going to talk mainly about the unknown facts, or the facts that are dismissed by nuclear weapons. <coughs> Um, some of these things are dismissed. One of the facts, actually, is the structural security checks, the uh, security environment, nuclear security environment, and the change in the environment. Um, nuclear weapon states, although saying that everything has changed, it's not a Cold War anymore, they continue their Cold War policies of modernization of nuclear weapons or, or coming up with uh, new ideas that they can actually still have the nuclear weapons. Although the post-Cold War environment uh, in the post-Cold War environment, it's not only the states that are the major actors anymore. It's the transnational actors, civil society, advocacy groups, um, and also the, uh, the population that has huge power to impact the decision makers. So I think that structural change in the thinking that national security is not a long uh, state security understanding, but actually it is a security plus that comes up with human security approach is a new, new thinking. And with that thinking, we got on board with the humanitarian initiative. Um, an example for, to that is migration, for instance. When we thought through migration before, it was all about the human security. Now the migration issue, when you look at it for Syria case, for instance, it becomes a human security issue that also affects the national security. And nuclear weapons are just the same. And the humanitarian initiative actually provides that, that box. Um, what we do at Chatham House is actually goes along to that road is we do workshops with the humanitarian organizations, mainly with Red Cross and Red Crescent societies to <coughs> create kind of an awareness uh, on, uh, on those societies that nuclear weapons cause uh, huge catastrophes and they would, they, do they know how to respond, how to be prepared or not. Uh, and we do this in a regional base, we did one in South Asia, we did one in um, in the Middle East, in Istanbul, focusing on the Middle East uh, Red Cross, uh, Red Crescent Society. We just did last week uh, with the Europe group, and Frank was there, Claire was there as well. Um, and so we are focusing on regional, regional aspects. The second thing that we haven't known by fact is the snowball, what I call as a snowball effect of nuclear weapons possession and use. We talked mainly about the blast effect and, and uh, the fires that, that would come out with a nuclear weapon weapons detonation, but we totally forgot about the aftermath effects that, that happens to the economy, to the environment, to the, uh, to the land that cannot be used anymore, or to the indigenous population. And with the humanitarian initiative, it's not only the nuclear weapons detonation, but also the nuclear testing portion that Chatham House works on right now. Um, because CTBT is still not ratified, and, and although, although there is kind of an understanding that there would be no nuclear testing that would happen, except North Korea probably, still it's not, it's not banned, it's, it's still out there. Um, and what we do at Chatham Mouse is to look at scenarios and uh, to create a society based on the scenarios when we think through the scenarios that we created. Uh, the third thing that is that is that the new fact is the increased risk of uh, rise of risk of nuclear weapons use. Uh, what we mean by risk is so how we define risk is the probability times consequences. 
a nuclear weapon explosion is a less probable effect, is a less probable um, incident to happen, but it has huge consequences, so it's a wild card that we need to think of. Um, and if we look at it, why we say that there is a higher risk, because there are uh, risks associated to nuclear and radiological materials, smuggling cases, such as in Moldova, like two weeks ago that happened, uh, a group, uh, an organized crime group, had an access to radioactive materials, and they tried to sell the material to ISIS. And this happened for the fourth, fourth time in five years, uh, especially in Moldova. And we believe that, that unfortunately, Russian uh, stockpile, old stockpile, is not safe and secure. And that increases <coughs> the risk. Hospitals also pose huge risks for radioactive materials as well, but it's, it's uh, I think, a different, different case. Other risks associated with nuclear weapons is through the emerging technologies. Um, cyber vulnerabilities are one of the things that's not been mentioned much. And uh, last month we published a report about cyber uh, cyber vulnerabilities in nuclear power plants. I know we know that nuclear power plants are diff different, but if you cannot secure your nuclear power plant, how are you going to secure nuclear arsenal? Is, is the main question that we go forward in that. Um, and most countries have safety standards on nuclear weapons, so even if you drop the nuclear weapon, there will be three, four things that, that should happen so it would not explode, they say. But not, it's not the same with all, uh, all arsenals as well. And uh, you would remember the drone intrusion, for instance, to the French nuclear power plants. So th these things happen. Um, and also there are risks that are associated to what we call as nuclear near misses. And we published a report about that too. That's called the Too Close uh, for Comfort. Um, what we looked at was around 20 to 30 cases from Cold War times onwards of where nuclear weapons were lost or they were, they were flown uh, by accident without the pilots or the crew's knowledge uh, from one city to another. In the United States this happened or, uh, or the submarine collusion that happened between UK and France and many other uh, incidents. So there, there is this high rise of risk um, and how these things were prevented is actually kind of a miracle. It was the human factory who decided not to take an action. But how, how long and how many times can we actually trust human factoring is another case, especially it goes directly to another uh, risk issue, which is the insider threat problem with the nuclear weapons. Uh, and the insider threat today is, is much more than the Cold War times, because there are more fragmented states. Uh, there are loose uh, fissile materials around the world that's more than the Cold War times as well, if you want to compare, the, compare these things. And also there's this diffuse nuclear knowledge uh, from earlier nuclear programs, like South African uh, program, for instance, that there are scientists out <coughs> there that, that, that we need to actually divert their knowledge to other issue areas. Um, I've, uh, last week I was in, uh, I was in the US I was in uh, the, White, uh, the White House and we were talking about these things and I asked, so do you do any kind of scientific engagement programs? And they said, no, because if the United States tried to do this, then they, they, the third parties like South, South Africa or any other state would just like say no to it and they wouldn't do that. So we just want uh, European Union or United Nations to do those things. Uh, in reality, they don't, they don't also engage on uh, those levels with the third parties as well. Um, 
so there are nuclear systems that are not protected from insider threat and which is a huge <coughs> problem. There's easy access to nuclear bases. Uh, United States just agreed like two, three weeks ago to upgrade Injerlik Air Base in Turkey, which has uh, which hosts around 50 to 60 nuclear weapons, as well as the uh, air base in in um, Italy as well. Uh, and th those those are vulnerable air bases with these uh, security and safety uh, conditions. And if you look at France, for instance, I think like a few years ago, uh, the, uh, one of the ballistic missiles compounds could, you can actually find it in uh, open source in Google Maps and there are photos of it. Uh, no biometric identification system was, uh, was needed to enter uh, the place. Also, like a few months ago, the UK, I think, uh, Submariner was it? Or a Royal... Uh, yep, yep, uh, Mariner. Yeah, Mar Marin, who, who, Marine. Uh, Marine, who actually said uh, that there are vulnerabilities with the UK submarine system as well. So there are these cases that we know of, but we never speak about, uh, because nuclear weapons, they say that these are not new facts. Um, and in developing countries, what we have is Pakistan is a, is a problematic case in this sense. And why am I giving examples like this? Because again, last week I was talking to a Pakistani um, researcher and he was saying that he's really scared of a limited uh, nuclear warfare between Pakistan and India. I, I, uh, I'm not going to give a name to the mouth rule, but um, so I said, are you, are you scared of this? Or are you actually, or you should be scared of maybe the fragmented system in Pakistan that could actually get a hold of a nuclear weapon and then that could happen. And he said, no, 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 these things never happen. Our systems are very safe and secure. Three times a terrorist, a terrorist group could actually enter the nuclear uh, power plants of Pakistan and try to try to uh, bomb the facility. This happened in, in the previous day in history. So I think those are those are good cases that we need to look at. And regardless of all uh, these facts, we rely on deterrence policies. Um, and if you ask me what deterrence is, deterrence is to keep the status quo in a political sense, right? Uh, not to change anything so that we will have a stable system. So status quo in this sense also means that we will keep 16,000 uh, nuclear warheads intact, 2,000 of them in a high alert situation. We will also still have the nuclear umbrella states in NATO, NATO policies. Two weeks ago, I was in a NATO conference uh, with the NATO PDD group. They are thinking about Russian aggression and how to respond and hold turns, uh, and it was all about deterrence. And uh, they were saying that it shouldn't be only the uh, only the regular deterrence policies that we, we should uh, we should put forward, but also the nuclear deterrence. So it is really really scary to actually put put back uh, the nuclear deterrence into NATO doctrine, although it's inside doctrine, it's, it's never been thought and, and talked about. So um, I'm, I'm finishing up. <laughs> so deterrence is not a stable policy. Accidents happen, mistakes happen, um, and uh, there are problems with the design and everything. Um, and if you like to talk about process, we can talk about the process on conference on disarmament or open-ended working group or even the first committee discussions that has just happened in, uh, for the last few weeks. But we believe that a parallel process where, um, where nuclear non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament sh should go in hand uh, together. Um, and so what we have today is we don't have a functioning disarmament body, a multilateral disarmament body. 
So we don't have any kind of uh, leverage on nuclear weapon states to do what the non-nuclear weapon states actually want. So there is no common ground in, in that understanding. If we did have a nuclear disarmament body, a functioning one, I think that uh, would be much easier for everyone to continue uh, the thinking. And when I look at the group in here, I, it's really good to see a lot of faces, but we, I think we are lacking a new generation as well, uh, because the new generation has forgotten uh, the uh, effects of nuclear weapons, and they have forgotten and never thought of uh, the existence of nuclear weapons. So it's our responsibility in a way to create that awareness and educate the new generation, and that's what we are trying to do at Chatham House. Thank you so much. Yeah. Right, and um, we come to Rebecca Sharkey. Hi, um, would you mind just switching the lights off? I've got a slideshow yes, for you. Yes, yes. So Re Rebecca is my, my good colleague on ICANN UK. Uh, she's a coordinator and uh, has, I think I first met you three or so years ago, uh, before the Oslo conference, and, and um, uh, she has sort of done so much for the the thinking in UK communities um, about the, the the problem, and particularly with the approach that ICANN is developing about the ban treaty. Rebecca. Hi. Um, I'll just start with a bit about ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. If you didn't know, we were set up by IPPNW, the International Positions for the Prevention of Nuclear War, in uh, 2007 with the very tight focus of campaigning for a, a ban treaty uh, prohibiting nuclear weapons. Um, we've got campaigners in nearly 100 countries worldwide and have uh, over 400 NGO partners and um, we're having quite a lot of success recently. Um, part of the... Can you see that all right, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit right. Um, so part of the, the humanitarian initiative, as you've already heard, is about reminding people how horrible these weapons are. Um, to a large degree, especially in nuclear weapon states, we've just forgotten how horrible they are and the catastrophic consequences that they could bring about. Um, I don't know if any of you were in the previous session about deterrence. Um, Richard Norton Taylor quoted this fantastic scene from Yes Minister in full, um, which just shows the kind of circular logic about nuclear deterrence. It's unprovable. So we, could we have been arguing for the last 70 years, in fact, about whether it works or not. And I think what the Humanitarian Initiative is seeking to do is break that circle and actually push forward to some decent progress on nuclear disarmament. Um, so this is Beatrice Finn, she's the Executive Director of ICANN based in Geneva. She says, the Humanitarian Initiative has enabled people to see nuclear weapons for what they really are, inhumane, indiscriminate and unacceptable weapons of terror. And um, recently 159 countries, which is 80% of UN member states, um, signed a very strongly worded statement at the United Nations expressing con deep concern at the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and calling for never to be used again under any circumstances. And as um, Angela Kane, uh, UN High Representative for Disarmament Affairs, said, this is about reclaiming the realist arguments from the nuclear weapon uh, uh, big believers, really. They say that we're not realistic, we're idealistic by talking about nuclear abolition. We say it's completely unrealistic and idealistic to say that nuclear deterrence can continue indefinitely. This idea of the balance of terror that, that keeps the peace somehow, that it will never go wrong. 
is actually an idealistic uh, position. And uh, by highlighting the humanitarian and environmental consequences, you force the hand of these people who believe in nuclear deterrence. Say, what if it goes wrong? You know, it is going to go wrong at some point. It's going to be catastrophic. Um, the International Red Cross, I think um, Tillman mentioned earlier, has played an absolutely key role in raising this issue at an international level and really paved the way for the whole humanitarian initiative which has then been taken up by countries like Austria, um, focusing on these consequences approach. Um, I think, uh, again, from the previous deterrence uh, discussion, the debate in this country is in a, a kind of a bubble. Um, and with these circular arguments and if you look outside the UK you know, most of the countries in the world neither have nor want nuclear weapons there's a completely different discussion going on in these countries and some UK politicians are more aware of this than others um, so Jeremy Corbyn said um, in January there are millions around the world who do not see nuclear weapons as their peace and their security they see nuclear weapons first as an enormous expenditure and secondly, as an enormous threat to this world. Bringing in that international perspective to this uh, very kind of limited debate that we have in England, not in Scotland, I would say, I think they are in, uh, picking up on this uh, very much on the international debate in Scotland. So this is the, the Austrian president. Nuclear weapons should be stigmatised, banned and eliminated before they abolish us. You know, these people are talking a lot of sense and um, it's time we stepped outside our little post-colonial bubble and, uh, and listen to some reason. In the UK, part of my job is to raise awareness of the implications of the UK's nuclear weapons and Trident. There's a fantastic new report by Scientists for Global Responsibility um, really laying out some of the key facts. So the nuclear weapons uh, carried on just one of our four Trident submarines could cause the deaths of more than 10 million civilians. Uh, this is more firepower than all of the weapons fired in World War II, the equivalent of 320 times uh, the firepower of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. <coughs> um, the global nuclear winter scenarios, that uh, there's been a major study looking at what if uh, India and Pakistan uh, threw 100 nuclear bombs at each other, uh, would trigger you know, catastrophic climate chaos. That The same result would happen if we fired um, the Trident the warheads on one of our Trident submarines. And these are the kind of things that um, the people in power don't want to think about. Again, the risks of living in a nuclear armed state are very high. Um, six times a year, these uh, fully assembled nuclear warheads are carried up and down ordinary roads uh, between Scotland and Berkshire. It's kind of, it's insanely dangerous. Um, so these are, these are things again that those are nicely marked, completely they're, black. They're very easy to find. There's a, there's a group of people called Nuke Watch who follow them. If they can find them, I would imagine that a terrorist group could also find them quite easily. So again, going back to Scotland, um, yes, the nuclear weapons uh, are stored there and they have a, a big nuclear weapons base at Faz Lane and that has been a key factor in, uh, in, a, in a kind of an awareness about what these are, and this is the M MP for Inverclyde, which borders Faz Lane. He says, sometimes I think that people's approach to Trident is an abstract one, but in my constituency it's real. It's a real weapon with a very real capacity to murder hundreds of millions of men, women and children. This kind of focus on the consequences is really important. We stop talking about it as a sort of symbolic, political tool with somehow 
magical peace-bringing uh, properties. It's just a massive bomb, basically. Um, so moving forward, uh, the humanitarian pledge that Monica mentioned earlier is a way for non-nuclear weapon states uh, to express their willingness to negotiate a banned treaty. It's fantastic that 121 countries are now signed up to fill the legal gap and um, and that was really uh, reaffirmed at the United Nations General Assembly uh, last month. Um, there was a, a big majority in favour of a resolution on this subject. So things are really really moving and in especially in terms of diplomacy in the last 70 years has been very very slow the humanitarian initiative is really uh, motoring forward with great progress um, it's completely illogical that nuclear weapons are not already illegal under international uh, humanitarian law um, all these other horrible weapons are um, at the end of the first world war everybody was so horrified at the casualties from uh, chemical and the gas that was chemical and biological weapons um, that were led to the Geneva Convention, um, which was a kind of benchmark in humanita international humanitarian law. I think really strongly now, after you know, it's been a long time since the end of the Cold War. We need to ban the weapons of those war, that war, and try and make some progress. Um, one of the key things about the ban treaty that ICANN is campaigning for is that um, we're not expecting the nuclear weapon states to sign up, but it's going to have a huge stigmatising effect on them, and I'm sure Wilbert and Micah will talk about this in terms of don't bank on the bomb. Um, Nick Ritchie from the University of York said, a new ban treaty would strip UK nuclear weapons of their veneer of legitimacy and substantially diminish the domestic political values assigned to these weapons. Just going back to um, the people in power not wanting to, to hear these arguments, um, I, I made this um, thing after we had a, a meeting at the Foreign Office that Beza was at as well, um, and the, the Foreign Office officials were just so patronising, uh, and, and they kept going, what's, what's all this about the humanitarian initiative, you know, what's all these new facts, and, and Beza set them straight, which I was very glad of. Um, <laughs> but it is, it's, uh, it's shaking things up and um, it's forcing people in power to reconsider um, their approach to this issue. Um, okay, okay. Um, yeah, we'll hear more from Don't Bank on the Bomb. I think it's a fantastic tool um, to en encourage people to think about this issue um, <coughs> because whether, you know, like if you think about it, in Scotland, there's been a, a great rejection of nuclear weapons, but the Royal Bank of Scotland uh, is one of the biggest producers, is the biggest producer, the biggest financer of nuclear weapons companies in this country. So people there might unwillingly and unwittingly be complicit in, uh, in the manufacture of these nuclear weapons that they want to get rid of. So this gives them a way to, to, to disinvest and put pressure on companies. Finally, just um, the point I made earlier about the abolition of slavery, I really think this is <coughs> one of those moments. I think the time has come. It's, it's a very interesting parallel to think about <laughs> how... half of the worst is Yeah, if you think about how um, intertwined slavery was with British society 200 years ago in, in terms of econo economy and culture, uh, and we have a similar position today, um, the sugar boycott against uh, the slave... The, the the slave, what are they called? The I think you have to read there because only half of the words are visible on the screen. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> so like all the black words are gone. I'll read it out. This is a quote from Adam Hochschild, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called Bury the Chains, 
about the abolition of the slave trade uh, in this country. Um, and all the way through it, I reading it, I was thinking, God, that's so similar to the humanitarian initiative and what we're doing today. And on the second last page, he said, uh, nuclear weapons are one of the entrenched wrongs of our own age, which need to be seen as both outrageous and solvable, just as slavery was felt to be in 1787. Um, and finally, nuclear weapons <coughs> have unacceptable consequences, even if they're never fired again. And I think uh, we've been working with the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association, so I agree with Beza about um, there's a whole way, a ho host of ways in which uh, these weapons are uh, unacceptable. And um, <coughs> it's time to scrap Trident and support an international treaty banning nuclear weapons. This really isn't a radical proposal. Um, it's about bloody time. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, before we go to, to question, I'd just like to, to say, say one, one anecdote that I think Liz will remember, possibly. Um, a, few, a couple of years back, we were engaged with the officials of the FC, Foreign Commonwealth Office and the Ministry of Defence. And the, the military man from the Ministry of Defence said, yes, of course we know about the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. We always have done in other words, you know, um, the humanitarian consequences that billions did, that's it's all part of the deterrence trick. And yeah, we, we understand what um, what uh, the humanitarian consequences are, that's why deterrence is so effective. And I I put on, I don't usually do this, I put on my doctory voice and look, and I said to him, I am a doctor and I don't think you understand what humanitarian consequences are. And he was silent for about 10 seconds. And I thought we had actually made a little hit there. It is the sort. It is. I mean, occasionally we do have to pull out our our medical stops and just make those points. So um, I do welcome what's been said by all three speakers. The other thing which I'd just like to add, um, to a slight clarification, and maybe Tillman can clarify this as well. There are two very close links processes going on in parallel. There's the official governmental one which is linked with the humanitarian pledge and what is now the reawakened open-ended working group for nations to challenge the rather closed discussions about the control over non-proliferation that the nuclear weapon states have actually got. So there's that diplomatic governmental process at the same time and with huge encouragement and with sort of swappings of ideas from both sides. There's the ICANN initiative for the Banning the Bomb Treaty, which, as Rebecca says, uh, we could start that process without actually involving the P5 at this stage, which sounds a little bit daring, but nevertheless, it may well be that that's the way it goes in order to kick them into action. So there are those, that's the way I see it. There, there are two closely parallel initiatives going on, and in a way, this room is what we're discussing now is the, is that situation, updating it and just discussing how it could go further forward. So questions? And we've got about 15 minutes of questions. Yeah. Yes. I think it's better if you start. Yes. I'm Abraham from the French APKW. And when we were on the Elysee Palace on the list of foreign countries in Paris, very ah. difficult to after the, the when we was in the, in the government, we have a meeting with the president that did Paris. 
after the EPTO group failed and after the UN assembly, the representative said, okay, we have no problem to discuss the nuclear disarmament. We have now enough time to discuss these questions a long, long time uh, uh, after. And he said, but the, the good news is, test ban is over. And we said, why? Why do you think it's a test ban is over? He said, because in the UN Assembly, the, this, this proposition don't start. And this is my question. What is possible to have an initiative to change this situation, not only on the nuclear states, but all the, on the other country, to have a, a real and uh, a real and very concrete initiative to reaffirm to have a real start of the test ban. I, I think that's partly what this whole day in this room has been about. What can we do to change and upgrade the initiative in order to Absolutely. bring about? Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank well, that, that's the question, Tillman. Tillman Ross from ICANN and IPPW. I particularly want to address um, Monica and thank. I hope on behalf of everybody in the room um, enormously the Austrian government for yes. your leadership yes. in hosting. Yes. 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 Initiating the Austrian now humanitarian pledge and playing such a leading and constructive and inspiring role around the world. Um, we can all do things individually on many issues, but it's only governments that can prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons. So it's working with leading governments that is the way that we have to work in civil society on this issue. So. Thank you very much. I, my question relates to this open-ended working group, which we see as a, a really important opportunity to bring, really advance the discussion about the next steps. And I wonder if you might be able to say any more about when it's likely to meet, how it might work, what opportunities there might be for civil society contributions, and what your advice would be to us about how to make how we can help make that process as useful as possible, hopefully getting us towards negotiations on a, on a banned treaty uh, before too long. While you're thinking about that, are there, is there any other question? Yes, good. Well, I don't know if the story, but anyhow, are we going on to talk about our next and next and next step? What is our vision, our ICANN and, uh, and collaborators? I mean, when we get to 130, 140 signatures, um, and then we go for the treaty, they go for the treaty, or we help with the treaty, and then we have uh, to get NATO state after NATO state to come in, and then we get Britain on board, and then we'll approach. I mean, is this part of the agenda today? Are we going to talk about that, or when do we? It could be, it could be. Okay. Right, we have two questions. We'd like to um, address the first one. Tillman's point. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so the the, um, the open-ended working group. So we we're really positive about that um, as well. I think um, it, I think the UN. I mean, it's it, the whole. <laughs> it's it's a tool that we have. So 
it, it has its flaws, many flaws, and um, and it's, it's often very slow and uh, and uh, and um, difficult to 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 also get how it's actually working. But <coughs> but I think these resolutions that that were passed uh, a few uh, weeks ago uh, are really um, yeah they, they really I mean they 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 can do they can make a difference and the open working group. Will, is it like a subsidiary body of the General Assembly, so it will report uh, to the General Assembly. And uh, it, it should, all I know is that it should start uh, meeting, I think in spring uh, 2016, in Geneva. And uh, and it's still, the question is still who, who is going to participate, because it's all states that are invited um, uh, to participate. And I think the, the essential, the essential uh, thing would be that as many states as possible uh, take part. So we are really advocating for a very, very broad participation. Um, probably, I don't know. I mean, if it if it, if it if it uh, proves to be uh, a really working uh, working body with uh, producing outcomes, uh, I hope that that it will generate uh, more uh, interest and and also really have uh, have major consequences. But if you if you want to know more details, I'll put you in touch with uh, with Alexander and also about how you could feed in because I'm sure I mean from our government I think what we what we really emphasized in uh, through, throughout all uh, the whole process was that it has to be uh, an inclusive um, uh, an inclusive process including civil society including uh, uh, international organizations states and so on uh, and and uh, and I think. We would always take on board um, any any input that comes from from, from organisations like Afghan. Can I just ask the, the general audience: Are you reasonably familiar what the idea of the open-ended working <coughs> group is? Would you like a bit of clarification about what that implies and and the uh, uh, and the developments thereof? Yes, uh, please. Yes. Okay. I had a feeling. Um, would you like to do that? I mean, you're probably better qualified than I am. I tell you what, I'll start off and he, he can correct me. <laughs> My understanding is that the, the whole of the nuclear disarmament control mechanism in the United Nations is under something called the Committee for Disarmament. And that only has about 65 nations who are able to participate. It's restricted. It's not open to all the member nations of the United Nations. Now, what's basically happened with the Non-Proliferation Treaty is that there's been a stranglehold on its progress, really probably going back 15, 20 years. A little bit of progress was made in 2010, no further progress in May this year. And basically, in the last 10 years, or nearly so, an increasing number of non-nuclear weapon states have got very frustrated and are really critical. Of course, as I said in one of the earlier sessions, the control of the NPT is in the hands of the P5, that's Britain, America, <coughs> France, Russia and China, who are the veto carriers of the United Nations Security Council, and they like the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was extended indefinitely in 1995, so there's no end <coughs> to the time, there's no time limit on its discussions. So the P5 like it because they can keep it under control. That slowed things up so much that the rest of the world has got, well, most of the rest of the world has got very fed up. And so they've gone to the United Nations General Assembly and there's something called the First Committee which uh, allowed all nations to challenge the process of in, in the Conference of Disarmament and the NPT about the non-proliferation, uh, about nuclear disarmament. Getting the P5 states to 
oblige themselves to disarm. And this was, this was in action a couple of years ago. Last week it was reenacted uh, by the first committee of the United Nations General <coughs> Assembly. Actually, one bit of a breakthrough is that the uh, nuclear states would have liked the discussions of the open-ended working group to be agreed by consensus, which had been another recipe for delay, delay, delay. Actually, I believe I'm right in saying that that was thrown out and the discussions can be carried out by majority, which is a significant advance in the diplomatic process of getting the ball rolling again. So that's what I understand by it. Is that, is that very clear? I think that's right. If I could perhaps just add a little context of... Uh, um, <coughs> this was not the only resolution, and I think the whole process of First Committee is... is I mean, it might sound a bit arcane, but yeah. I think it's actually really exciting. I mean, this yeah. first committee, there was clearly a level of uncertainty, of engagement, of real discussion, of tensions, um, and of outcomes yeah. that was unprecedented for a very long time. So these two open-ended, there were two proposals for open-ended working groups. And there was a previous open-ended working group which reported to the General Assembly uh, 2013, yeah. um, but which really just had a mandate to talk and bring ideas back. So there were some very useful ideas there, but they didn't have any particular obvious pathway to go anywhere. Um, there were a number of resolutions that I think helped set the scene that passed at this uh, first committee, and the final votes will happen in the first or second week of December by the whole General Assembly, but they, there's really no reason to think that they will go any way different from the votes taken in First Committee over the last couple of weeks. So the humanitarian pledge has been turned into a resolution, it's been brought into the UN context, and it attracted more votes than are signatories to the pledge. So a number of countries that should have probably signed the pledge, you know, were for, kind of forced to to choose which side they're on. So that's now firmly embedded in a UN context. There was another resolution of the that's been building for several years since the PrepCom in 2010, starting with the group of 16 that has, the wording's changed a bit, it's been progressively added to, but essentially says that nuclear weapons must never be used again under any circumstances. And that the humanitarian consequences of the weapons have to be front and centre and at the core of any discussions and deliberations about them. And that was also uh, reaffirmed again. And all of these were carried by more than 120 states. And then the third one was a new resolution from South Africa, which really, I think, potentially is quite helpful because it says, essentially puts the moral and the ethical dimension around nuclear weapons. It says this is an obligation for all peoples and all states and this goes beyond the law. This is about our fundamental ethical responsibilities to protect humanity, to safeguard the environment, to protect future generations. It's putting it on an ethical basis, taking it a little away from, from the legal discussion. And all of those passed by very substantial minorities, majorities. And then there were two proposals for open-ended working groups. One, I think rather devious one, I have to say, that was put forward by, by Iran, which for, was for an open-ended working group running for several years, operating by consensus, which is the death knell 
for any useful outcome in this context. Um, reporting back in several years and meeting just once per year. So really not particularly helpful. A bit of a talk fest, um, basically to distract and delay. Uh, it had some support among the nuclear armed states. The Iranians possibly relied on significant support from NAM countries, which they didn't get, uh, the non-aligned movement countries. So in the end, that resolution was withdrawn. And there were difficulties with the US potentially supporting a resolution com coming for domestic political reasons coming from Iran, whatever it said. So that kind of lapse. So Mexico then had a stronger proposal for an open-ended working group that actually originally had a mandate in the, in the original proposal to negotiate substantial legal measures um, to fill the legal gap, essentially, with a shorter timeline three meetings over one year reporting to the next General Assembly. That negotiate uh, mandate was uh, reduced, and I have to say that my own government was leading in the <laughs> weakening. Uh, there was some argy-bargy about this, and the wording is now substantially address effective measures. It's not quite as strong, but the wording may be less important. But the most important thing is that, that I think the the consensus rule doesn't apply. There were no hostile amendments to this resolution. So apart from that weakening, essentially it stands. So I think the important thing is what countries now make of this. And it really is an opportunity to bring and discuss the elements of what a prohibition treaty would look like and what the elements should be and really put that on the table so that it can really progress the discussion and the next step is the commencement of negotiations. I can position on is that there should be a treaty to prohibit and provide for the elimination of nuclear weapons, that those negotiations should start very soon, there's no reason for any delay, that they could be concluded within a matter of no more than a year or two, that they should be open to all but blockable by none, that they can be commenced and, if necessary, concluded without the participation of nuclear armed states. They should include civil society um, and they should comprehensively prohibit the development, testing, production, use, deployment, transfer and threat of use of nuclear weapons. Um, they should have obli positive obligations to assist um, poorer countries to meet their treaty obligations and they should have obligations to uh, provide for environmental monitoring and restoration and the care of uh, survivors of nuclear testing and other uh, nuclear disasters, Hibakusha from Japan for example, so that there will be some victim obligations in there. And that's essentially ICANN's position. We haven't taken a view on, we don't really care what the forum is and I think it's very important for us not to be try and be too clever about, you know, which we were pretty sceptical about the, the utility of, an, of another open-ended working group. Um, but I think it's very important to, to, to be open to the possibilities not to try and overcall things or to be too pres prescriptive or do things that might actually hamstring us. I would have preferred, um, you know, South Africa to announce six months ago that they were hosting a conference to yes. begin negotiations on a nuclear ban treaty, but they're not. We have this open-ended working group. I think that's an extraordinary opportunity that, that we should grasp, and we should encourage our governments to commit to participate, 
constructively, to bring constructive proposals how to fill the legal gap um, and hope that our, our friends in uh, leading governments will make sure that this forum really goes somewhere. Thank you very much. Well, I think you can see why we are so lucky in IPPNW to have Tillman as one of our co-presidents because he has rattled off just from the top of his head the core of what we're working for. I've lost sight of the second question. What was that? Um, Next question. It was Gwyneth's question. Yes, what is the next step? What's yeah, the next step? Well, well, okay, two minutes on this and then we go on to the don't bank on the bomb. Yes, what are the next steps? Um, Rebecca, have you got any idea what the next steps are? Cheating, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, well, one of the next steps is don't bank on the bomb, so I, I would like, quite like to <laughs> move on, actually. I think we need to start putting this into action. Um, and certainly in, in this country, just raising awareness, kicking off debates. Today is a fantastic opportunity. Um, you know, up in Scotland, they've already had this. So the independence debate, the referendum, gave people the opportunity to discuss really what kind of society they want. And uh, if you were designing a society, would you have one? Would you include weapons of mass destruction in that? Uh, and the you know the resounding uh, response is no. And we need to have that debate in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. and, and one of the ways to trigger that debate is to think about where our, our money is invested. Uh, and you know, we, we have all these ethical investments these days and consumers are increasingly demanding higher standards in, in how the things that we consume are produced. Um, and yet many of us uh, will have our money invested in uh, companies that produce weapons. They are weapons of mass destruction. So. Anything? So you've got you, yeah, you, you are yeah. nodding. Carry on. Yes. I agree with Rebecca. The humanitarian pledge started this um, commitment in a way from the states, but that commitment needs to get into implementation. So that I think the next step is to take the action. And then yes, the economy is one of the actions. But the second thing is also to focus on the um, so-called nuclear umbrella states and to actually like, track a little bit of NATO's deterrence policies because can get the those nuclear umbrella states on board or the uh, or the states that are uh, host nuclear host countries like Turkey, Netherlands or, or Belgium on board with the humanitarian pledge, I think that would create a huge momentum. So I think we, we need to go on that road as well a little bit. I've got a UK focus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Long short question for you about this. Is there a revision already as far as I around this development? between uh, umbrella states abstaining from voting and umbrella states voting against, uh, like in Eastern Europe countries. Uh, so that, that there is some slight... You can, you can actually see the voting list of what countries voted. So I, I'm not, I think there is an element, but the, uh, you, you can go onto a link which will tell you, I mean, um, Beatrice Finn has emailed and you can see who voted for each of the resolutions uh, in the first committee. I think we must press on. So don't bank on the bomb. We've got um, two wonderful people just to, to go ahead. So introduce yourselves and say what you've been doing. We will, thank you. And thanks for the invitation to come and present uh, our new report, Don't Bank on the Bomb. We launched it yesterday uh, internationally with a launch video that we will show you, or at least try to show you. I'm not sure if we can hear it, but... Uh, and we'll talk you a little bit through the report, but also uh, at the end we will uh, try to get you very awake by uh, making you take out your phone and actually send messages to your own uh, bank or pension fund. It's no obligation, but we're going to try uh, to convince you to do that anyway. Um, 
I want to start by uh, connecting it a little bit to what uh, Rebecca, I think, uh, was saying, but also some other people have been saying throughout the day, is this idea of the bubble, is this idea that you might think if you live in the UK that everybody believes that uh, nuclear deterrence, for example, is a very rational and, uh, and important concept. Most people actually don't buy this anymore. Most governments already have departed from this uh, over the past few years. Um, the same um, is the idea that we are talking about in Don't Bank on the Bomb, this concept that it is normal that you have private companies producing nuclear weapons and then financial institutions actually investing in those companies. This is not a normal concept. This is not a concept that is shared widely in, in the world. So the two very sort of uh, sort of brief, uh, how do you say, like uh, put together um, a graph that we have here, show, show, show you a little bit of how that, how that is in reality. So there are only six countries in the world that have this, that have private companies uh, uh, in which uh, financial institutions can invest. There's only six countries. So there's 188 countries that don't have this problem or don't have this concept. In many of those cases, so it's like somebody in Brazil cannot have his money f uh, in a Brazilian bank that then puts money in a Brazilian nuclear weapon uh, company. Uh, it just doesn't exist. It is only in Western states that this is a that this is a concept that we uh, need to look at. Um, similarly, on the investment side, which you see at the bottom right, if you can see it, the, the light is not so good, but that's. Um, in terms of investment, so it's like if you count up all the investments of these banks and pension funds and, and insurance companies in these nuclear weapon producing companies, uh, it's quite a, a quite a disbalance between the US and its allies and uh, the rest of the world basically. So 480 billion of that money uh, uh, comes from financial institutions in US or allies and only 144 billion uh, from other states and those other states are still then very it's very condensed into a couple of states so it's like china india uh, and a couple of other states and we making this little graph this morning we were still you know we were still doubting for a lot of states if we shouldn't list them as a u.s ally but in in all of those cases we put them in the rest of the world so in actual fact it's probably much worse um This is a little video that we that we released um, the report with yesterday, and we're just going to try if it works. The, the light is not so good, but if it works, it saves me a lot of uh, time explaining the report. So let's let's mm -hmm. at least try. Is it coming through? Does it coming through? All your life, you entrust money to the bank, pension fund, and your insurance company. Sorry, yes, we need. <laughs> no, I think it's if you close. They're trying to show a video and it's not yeah. coming through the. Through yeah, the you need to. You need to yeah. through the get out of the slides. Huh? Yeah, yeah get out of the slides. Last attempt. Bless you. Well done. Well done. <laughs> All your life, you entrust money to your bank, your pension fund, and your insurance company, expecting them to take good care of your money. You take for granted that the money is there when you need it, not knowing what these institutions actually do with your money in the meantime. What you don't expect is for them to use your money to finance nuclear weapon producers. The PAX report, Don't Bank on the Bomb, shows that many actually do. This report supports the growing international push for a ban on nuclear weapons, all nuclear weapons. The good news in this report is, 
30 financial institutions already prohibit any investment in producers of nuclear weapons. That is an increase of 50% in one year in our Hall of Fame. One of them is the Dutch ASM Bank. ASM Bank does not invest in any companies that produce weapons, because weapons cause great suffering, both intended and unintended. ASM Bank supports the push for a treaty banning nuclear weapons to make nuclear weapons illegal for everyone and to stop all investments in nuclear weapon producers. We don't bank on the bomb. Instead, we bank on a ban. And there is more good news. The report shows an increase of 50% in runs-up. 40 institutions limit their investments. Their policy still contains new funds. Unfortunately, there are still 382 financial institutions from 27 countries that invest in nuclear weapon producing companies. They made money available to 26 identified producers, a staggering 493 billion US dollars. This needs to stop. The good example of the ASM bank shows us that the stigma of nuclear weapons is growing. More and more banks and pension funds refuse to, to invest in these weapons. And this needs to be translated in a ban on nuclear weapons and a ban on investing in these weapons to help stop the production of new nukes. Go to the website don'tbankonthebomb.com send a message to your bank or pension fund to tell them to stop investing your money in nuclear weapons. Okay. So the whole fact that we get a bank from the Netherlands to say this on record, right? Like in a release video that's spread all over the world, I think shows how small this bubble is getting. Uh, it's like it is outside the UK and outside France and a couple of other countries. This is not normal anymore. In the Netherlands, by now, banks are seriously targeted if they don't have a policy excluding nuclear weapons producers. We had uh, several banks yesterday who were extremely angry about a report, and maybe for good reason, because they say we, we made a mistake and we list investments that they say they don't have. And let's assume for a moment they are right. They are by now saying that this is causing reputational damage to them. So a bank in Sweden by now uh, experiences real damages to its reputation if it's seen to be investing in nuclear weapons. This bubble is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and I think that's largely through the good work of all the campaigners that are working not only on Don't Bank on the Bomb, but for ICANN and other initiatives that are trying to limit uh, this power of those nuclear weapon states and some of their allies to sort of keep this, keep this the status quo, but also like the mainstream argumentation. Uh, and we're trying to change that through this report. Unpacking a little bit of, of what the, the video already said, um, the good news really in this report is that this bubble is getting smaller and this is seen uh, by a 50% increase this year alone in the amount of financial institutions that we find that exclude nuclear weapons uh, companies from their portfolios entirely. Um, as you can see it's very much limited to, to Europe, so in Europe uh, this is a very this is becoming a very normal discussion that you can have with your bank or uh, with your pension fund or your or whatever other financial institution uh, if it's the uh, the green here shows countries where there is a financial institution that is completely clean of these investments if it's yellow it means that there is an institution that is not based in the country but operational in that country for example here in the uk you have the triodos bank um, that you can bank with, but it's not a UK bank, it's actually a Dutch bank. So that would have been yellow, but because, uh, because there's also the cooperative bank here in the UK, uh, the UK was actually green uh, in the slide that we just saw. Um, so 
focusing on the UK, as I said, already said, the cooperative bank is the only completely clean financial institution that we have in our report. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are no others. The, the methodology of our report is so that we present those uh, institutions with a very elaborate uh, questionnaire and only if they actually fill it in and they turn out they have a uh, public policy on this, uh, they can be in our report. Uh, and for example, uh, building societies here specifically, that's very specific for the UK, don't end up in a report, not because they don't have a policy, but because they um, no, sorry, because they don't have a policy, but they also probably don't need a policy because most of them don't actually have financial activities that would allow them to invest in any of those companies. So they are saying we don't really need a policy, we are clean uh, de facto, we are, uh, you know, uh, by nature we are clean from these investments. There's a bit, of a bit of a difficulty there because some of those building societies have changed over the past couple of years and have become more like mainstream uh, financial institutions, but uh, most of them would still be clean. So those would be clean choices that you have uh, if you're uh, living in the UK. As I already said, like there's Trios Bank as well, so it's not a UK bank, but it's uh, it's clean from all investments and has a really good policy. Uh, and there are several other options, for example, Al Rayyan Bank here in the UK. We could not Im uh, include in our report because they are a daughter of a parent um, financial institution uh, that's based in, in Qatar or the UAE, I can't remember, uh, that actually has a really, really bad policy and actually invests heavily in, uh, in arms trade, uh, especially in the Gulf region. Uh, but they themselves um, uh, should be fine. And then of course there's the, all these, uh, and this is a booming business, there's all these ethical funds that uh, institutions have. Uh, they don't appear in our report as well because we would then say, okay, well, if you already acknowledge, um, well, in, instead of only having the funds, we want you to, uh, to adopt a policy that, um, uh, that counts for your whole organization. Uh, there's bad news as well, of course. And uh, I, I would want to leave that to my colleague uh, Maike, because <laughs> so I had the easy positive part, and now she does the the angry part. Yeah, so our, our report doesn't only look at um, which financial institutions have policies banning nuclear weapons and uh, weapon producers, um, but we also investigate <coughs> which financial institutions actually invest in companies that produce nuclear weapons. <coughs> Sorry. Um, so this year we found that uh, you can see the numbers here, but I will read them out. 382 financial institutions from 27 countries invested 493 billion US dollars in 26 nuclear weapon producers. Um, so we also we already showed the, uh, saw the graphs in the beginning. These um, 382 financial institutions are very much a Western problem. So most of them actually are in the United States. Uh, I think the uh, United Kingdom is the is the second country where these uh, institutions uh, are based. So then um, we looked up some stuff for the UK specific and you all found the, uh, the postcard on your chair. Um, so we looked at what financial UK based financial institutions actually uh, invest in the companies that are involved in Trident. Um, and we have the top six of these uh, institutions up here. So we can see that the Royal Bank of Scotland is actually the largest UK-based investor in uh, the companies that are shown on the submarine below here, <laughs> which are involved in Trident. Um, they invested four and a half billion pounds. So that's for me, it's still a number that I can re not really grasp. Four and a half billion pounds in, in these companies that, uh, that produce Trident. Um, <laughs> so for the, for the rest, we have Barclays, HSBC, the Old Mutual, Lloyds Banking Group, and finally the Children Investments Fund Management. 
I'm not sure if you would invest the future of your tri chi children in a nuclear weapon producer. So that was for the bad news, but there's more good news. <laughs> so that's my part again. <laughs> <laughs> that's your problem. This wasn't planned like this, it's just, but it works for me. <laughs> so the, the more good news is, in, is in, the, in the fact that we have done this for three years now, this report. So uh, all in all, because we started early, so we have been, for almost four years, we, we've been engaged in this sort of research, but also in this sort of campaigning. It's not only the research that we do. And we actually rely on, uh, on campaigners in about 20 countries who go out and then do stuff with this report, or at least w w with the data in this report. So yesterday when we launched the report, uh, we had people uh, all over Europe, but also in the U in the U.S. and in uh, in Australia, for example, uh, targeting uh, the press or going or, or or choosing a specific bank or a specific other financial institution uh, to try and engage with or engage with the public to try and pressure these uh, institutions. And those are just a couple of more or less random examples, except the one in the top left corner of course not random at all because that's Rebecca Sharkey there uh, who was uh, campaigning here at the arms, arms fair uh, only a couple of weeks ago uh, so they were targeting the producers but also the clients of those producers and, and trying to make uh, make a statement there uh, on the top right is very boring picture I know but it's it, we were very happy with it because it's in France and in in France campaigners in Marseille uh, targeted their local council uh, asking the council to take steps to uh, divest their own pension funds from uh, nuclear weapon producers uh, and I think this is a huge step that in France people are, are starting to speak out on this as well uh, in the bottom left, um, interestingly, is from uh, Austria, and I, I put it in there because that's one of the most successful local campaigns that we have seen. This is last year after the report came out. It turned out that in Austria, despite the very strict uh, Austrian uh, um, uh, policies and uh, also rules, there was one bank that uh, still had some investments in uh, nuclear weapon producers, Erste Bank. Um, and the, the great thing was that the campaigners um, got newspapers to write about this and like within a couple of days this became like a political hot issue uh, leading to the finance minister or the foreign minister I can remember of Austria uh, saying on public television uh, that he thought that Erste Bank should go further than just applying the law and that, that, that he would expect them to divest from any nuclear weapon producing companies. Estebank has since since then not completely done that yet, uh, but they are uh, they are actually devising new policies and implementing them. It takes them a little bit time, so they're still in the report this year, but it's already going down, and we believe they will uh, divest completely. Uh, similarly, Comets Bank also last year it was a really successful campaign, really sympathetic campaign as well. We we usually don't uh, there, there's a, there's a naming of shame and shaming element in it, uh, but in in Germany what the campaigns did was just take uh, a picture of an ATM of Comets bank uh, just a sort of selfie uh, and then show it se se uh, send it to the bank with a message saying like please divest uh, my money from uh, from nuclear producers leading to commerce bank already implementing uh, some new policy and still negotiating about uh, maybe going even further than that so the bubble is uh, is getting smaller and smaller um, then this is the moment and we still it is good we still have like five to ten minutes for this uh, that it's your turn <laughs> Because the whole point of Don't Bank on the Bomb is that we that we that we uh, bring it back to the customers of these financial institutions. Uh, we provide the information to people uh, that they can check themselves if their financial institution, because most people don't actually know, uh, is involved in any of these uh, dirty uh, companies. Um, so I would really, you're not obliged, but I would really challenge you to get out your phone now, uh, and hopefully you have connection to the internet here, and then uh, work with us 
uh, and we'll show you how you can just send an, uh, uh, a message. It's not a, it's not a very radical message to your financial institution. Uh, you can also, if your financial institution is not here, feel free to choose another one and uh, one that you particularly don't like, for example, and tell them to uh, get their money out of nuclear weapons. Michael. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to guide you through all this. I hope you can see it on the screen because no, you can't really, right? Uh, no, sorry. Well, I can, I can still try to explain, maybe. Um, because so what's, what's so nice about our research is that uh, it shows your personal connection to these nuclear weapons. So maybe, like earlier, we talked a lot about ban treaties and, and diplomats and talking, um, and uh, they might feel quite far away sometimes. Um, but our research shows how maybe a lot of people here are probably with Barclays, for example, um, how your money that you saved up to, I don't know, for your retirement maybe, is actually financing these weapons. So that also means that you yourself can do very practical things to help end these weapons. Um, so on our website we have um, a page that's called Send a Message, and there you for can... First tell people to go to www. Yeah, so first you go to www.dontbankonthebomb.com, you can see that, that on top. Has everybody got the Wi-Fi? Yeah. Oh yeah, what's the Wi-Fi code? Uh, it's at British Quaker. At British Quaker, and both British and Quaker with a capital? Yeah. It's, it's, in, it's in the leaflet. Ah, on yeah, it's in the, the first page. The first page. <laughs> <laughs> so FH conferencing, and then the code is. At British Quakers with a capital B and a capital Q. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah. I don't think the ad needs to be. Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry. Do we need to be with this? No, I don't know. No. So never mind about the screen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I'll try to do it from the top of my head then. Um, you can check us through it. So we have all the slides. Have I have So if you're on the website, don't bank on the bottom. Yeah. Then can you see this? No. Can't no. see this. <laughs> <laughs> there is, yep. Okay, so um, there's like a, a light grey bar that says home and then nuclear weapon producers and it also says send a message. So if you go to that page, then um, you see a little box that says has three tabs, Hall of Fame, Runners Up and Hall of Shame. Um, so in if we go to the Hall of Shame tab, oh we're already, already there. We. Um, I'll, I'll try to talk to, through an example of Barclays. So you, if your Bar Barclays is in the in our Hall of Fame because it has investment, so many shame. investments. Uh, Hall of Shame, sorry. <laughs> shame, <laughs> yes. Hall of Shame. It's kind of different. Um, so you can go to Barclays, and then um, there's a link to a contact form. And it also has... Um, no, no, yeah. But Okay, so you can go to the contact form and then below it, it already says send this email. So we like pre-wrote an email um, to make it easier basically. And it's not a very aggressive email, it just basically says like I saw this and this uh, in Don't Bank on the Bomb and I, don't, I really do not want you to invest in nuclear weapon producers. Um, so please stop, <laughs> basically. Um, 
So you can go to this contact form uh, and just copy in the message if you'd like or write your own message and then send them a message that lets them know that their customers are really concerned about this uh, and want them to stop. Where, where did I lose you? <laughs> Send a message. Okay. Okay. The website is called Don't Bank on Bomb without an apostrophe, right? So it's like just uh, in one word, don't bank on the bomb. Dot com. Okay, do you have, because um, I, I think my bank is a branch of the World Bank of Scotland, uh -huh. but it doesn't show it there. No, that could be. We only the report only looks at parent companies. So oh, yeah. that means if it's a, if it's a branch, then uh, then. No, we haven't. But um, in any case, I mean, we were going to say this, but like, uh, if you have trouble doing this now, or you just don't want to, you want to think about it first as well, you can do it. Do this at home, obviously, because it's just on the website. We're also here still tomorrow with a laptop uh, and uh, and in one of the stalls downstairs. So you can always come to us and and ask our advice, both on finding your financial institution, whether it's in there or not, uh, but also like if if you have trouble uh, sending this kind of message, but you still want to do it. Um, yeah. Excuse me? Do you have a list of Twitter handles? We also do that. So um, I was just going to say also about Cooperative Bank. And if you go there, then, then you can see. Um, because Cooperative Bank, of course, is a, is a, is a good student here. Uh, and you can also on the website go to um, the, the tab that says Hall of Fame. And there you can congratulate Cooperative Bank. Because I think it's also important just that uh, customers interact with their bank and say that it matters to them. Um, so you can send Cooperative a message. And there we have a, a click to tweet. Um, so, so we already prepared the Twitter uh, <coughs> messages for you as well. Um, but if you um, if you can't find your click to tweet, we also have um, we have um, a list of Twitter addresses on our website as well. So we can we can if you want to find a specific one, we can help you. <laughs> and the cooperative bank needs your encouragement. Uh, particularly as the difficult no. times have been going through the last few years. No, exactly, and it's actually it's really good news that Cooperative is back in the Hall of Fame because they weren't last year. And maybe some of you remember, if you especially when you're banking there, there was this campaign saying "Save Our Bank." Yes, I think by Ethical Consumer and others. Yes, uh, and it worked. It really, really worked. They relaunched their uh, policy, and they basically came to the conclusion that all their policies that they had before, and that they were starting to doubt, were still valid. They they had engagement with their with their customers, and they decided to just stay basically the way they are. And they also fended off, in a sense, uh, some of those investment companies that had that had bought their parent company. So they are now again an independent bank. Uh, still with close ties to the corporate group, of obviously, but an independent bank, uh, and all their old policies are in place, so they are again sort of a good, clean bank. And also, maybe just to um, cheer people up, <laughs> um, maybe sometimes it feels like, oh, I'm just one person and I don't have that much in my bank account anyway, uh, so what? why would this bank care about me? Um, but I think from our maybe sister campaign, we have a very nice... Um, uh, example because the cluster munitions campaign uh, also had this divestment um, strategy and there are so many uh, financial institutions actually divested from Lockheed Martin uh, which was a producer that uh, we Pax got a letter from Lockheed Martin saying like okay we will stop making these cluster munitions now because uh, and then we hope that by stopping we will be able to get new investments so this this producer was really convinced to stop making these weapons by well, also by customers just like we are. 
So that's a, I think that's a very encouraging thought. I think we have to leave it. My super, superannuation scheme, the university superannuation scheme, is funding. Them, but I don't want to divest from that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm just wondering what one we could do can with that. Yeah. I'm just a verbal protest. Yes. Yeah. Well, there are other. I think the MRC pension scheme is still yeah. inevitably involved in some of these. I think all we can do is, you know, we are in a bit of a trap, but we can still protest. Yeah, that's not, no, exactly. not from the inside. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the example that Mike had just uh, just had, I think it really shows. Uh, obviously, if you if you are the only one sending a message to your financial institution, it's not going to matter much. But we already know from experience that even a small number of people, like say 20 customers or maybe a little bit more than that, uh, already creates uh, a, a sense with a with a financial institution that they have that they have to respond to, uh, respond to this, and that then starts the discussion. And we have already already seen in many European countries outside, uh, well on the continent, let's put it that way, uh, that that we have already reached and passed this tipping point where it is no longer radical to talk about uh, divesting from nuclear weapons, but it actually becomes a radical uh, issue if you still believe that this is a valid investment to make. Uh, so I, I really urge you to consider this and uh, maybe at a later stage, if it doesn't work now, uh, send a message to your to your bank or your pension fund. Um, and uh, maybe, so, uh, you know, uh, occasionally check our website to see if there's new uh, material or maybe, for example, also new news. For example, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, we are engaging with, they do have a little bit of a policy. It's a really crappy policy, but it's something, and it, this can start a debate with them to try and see how we can strengthen that. I think it's more important for right to bank to say, thank you, thank you for uh, yeah. stopping this. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And all the Swedish banks are clear now, I see that here. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I just thank all, thank, thank all the speakers um, and Micah and uh, your words as, as well as the three previous ones. And a uh, big round.